Chapter Thirty of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. Home. The fire of the batteries increased, and by the thirteenth of January, the enemy's fire was completely silenced. The provisions in the town were wholly exhausted, and on the sixteenth, the town surrendered, and the next morning, the English took possession. Three days afterwards. Lally was embarked on a board ship to be taken a prisoner to Madras, and so much was he hated that the French officers and civilians assembled and hissed and hooted him, and had he not been protected by his guard, would have torn him to pieces. After his return to France, he was tried for having, by his conduct, caused the loss of the French possessions in India, and being found guilty of the offense, was beheaded. At Pondicherry, 2,072 military prisoners were taken, and 381 civilians, 500 cannon and 100 mortars, fit for service, and immense quantities of ammunition, arms, and military stores fell into the hands of the captors. Pondicherry was handed over to the company, who, a short time afterwards, entirely demolished both the fortress and town. This hard measure was the consequence of a letter which had been intercepted from the French governor to Lally, ordering him to raise Madras to the ground when it fell into his hands. Charlie, after the siege in which he had rendered great services, received from the company, at Colonel Coote's earnest recommendation, his promotion to the step of lieutenant colonel, while Peters was raised to that of a major. A fortnight after the fall of Pondicherry, they returned to Madras, and thence took the first ship for England. It was now just ten years since they had sailed, and in that time they had seen Madras and Calcutta rise from the rank of two trading stations in constant danger of destruction by their powerful neighbors to that of virtual capitals of great provinces. Not as yet, indeed, had they openly assumed the sovereignty of these territories, but Madras was, in fact, the absolute master of the broad tract of land extending from the foot of the mountains to the sea, from Cape Comorin to Bengal, while Calcutta was master of Bengal and Oressa, and her power already threatened to extend recommendation itself as far as Delhi. The conquest of these vast tracts of country had been achieved by mere handfuls of men and by a display of heroic valor and constantly scarce to be rivaled in the history of the world. The voyage was a pleasant one and was for the times quick, occupying only five months, but to the young men longing for home after so long an absence it seemed tedious in the extreme. Tim and Hussein were well content with their quiet, easy life after their long toils. They had nothing whatever to do except that they insisted upon waiting upon Charlie and Peters at meals. The ship carried a large number of sick and wounded officers and men, and as these gained health and strength, their life on board ship became livelier and more jovial. Singing and cards occupied the evening, while in the daytime they played quoits rings of rope being used for that purpose, and other gains with which passengers usually while away the monotony of long voyages. It was late in June when the Madras sailed up the Thames. 
and as soon as she came to anchor, the two officers and their followers landed. The din and bustle of the streets seemed almost as strange to Charlie as they had done when he came up a boy from Yarmouth. Hussein was astonished at the multitude of white people and inquired of Charlie why, when there were so many men, England had sent so few soldiers to fight for her in India, and for once Charlie was unable to give a satisfactory reply. It does seem strange, he said to Peters, that when such mighty interests were at stake, a body of even 10,000 troops could not have been raised and sent out. Such a force would have decided the struggle at once, and in three months the great possessions which have cost the company twelve years' war would have been at their feet. It would not have cost them more, indeed nothing like as much as it now has done, nor one tithe of the loss in life. However, somehow England always seems to make war in driblets. Charlie knew that his mother and Kate had for some years been residing at a house which their uncle had taken in the fashionable quarter of Chelsea. They looked in at the office, however, to see if Charlie's uncle was there, but found that he was not in the city, and indeed had now almost retired from business. They therefore took a coach, placed the small articles of luggage which they had brought with them from the ship, on the front seats, and then Hussein and Tim taking their places on the broad seat beside the driver, they entered the coach and drove to Chelsea. Charlie had invited Peters, who had no home of his own, to stay with him, at least for a while. Both were now rich men from their shares of the prize money of the various forts and towns in whose capture they had taken part. Although Charlie possessed some twenty thousand pounds more than his friend, this being the amount of the presents he had received from the Rajah of Ambor. Alighting from the carriage, Charlie ran up to the door and knocked, inquiring for Mrs. Marriott. He was shown into a room in which a lady, somewhat past middle age, and three younger ones were sitting. They looked up in surprise as the young men entered. Ten years had changed them almost beyond recognition. But one of the younger ones at once leaped to her feet and exclaimed, Charlie! His mother rose with a cry of joy, threw herself into his arms. After rapturously kissing her, he turned to the others. Their faces were changed, yet all seemed equally familiar to him. And in his delight, he equally embraced them all. Hello, he explained, when he freed himself from her arms. Why, there are three of you. What on earth am I doing? I have somebody's pardon to beg. And yet, although your faces are changed, they seem equally familiar to me. Which is it? But I need not ask, he said, as a cloud of color flowed over the face of one of the girls, while the others smiled mischievously. You are Katie, he said, and you are Lizzie. Certainly, and this is why it's Ada. This is a surprise, indeed, but I shan't beg your pardon, Ada, for I kissed you at parting, and quite intended to do so when I met again, at least if you had offered no violent objection. How you are all grown and changed, while you, mother, look scarcely older than when I left you. But there, I have quite forgotten Peters. He has come home with me, and will stay till he has formed his own plans." He hurried out and brought in Peters, who, not wishing to be present at the family meeting, had been paying the coachman and seeing to the things 
being brought into the house. He was warmly received by the ladies as the friends and companion of Charlie in his adventures, scarcely a letter having been received from the latter without mention having been made of his comrade. In a minute or two, Mr. Tufton, who had been in the large garden behind the house, hurried in. He was now quite an old man, and under the influence of age, and the cheerful society of Mrs. Marriott and her daughters, he had lost much of the pomposity which had before distinguished him. Ah, nephew, he said, when the happy party had sat down to dinner, their number increased by the arrival of Mrs. Haynes, who had a house close by. Wilful lads will go their own way. I wanted to make a rich merchant of you, and you have made of yourself a famous soldier but you've not done badly for yourself after all for you have in your letters often talked about prize money yes uncle i have earned in my way close upon a hundred thousand pounds and i certainly shouldn't have made that if i had stuck to the office at madras even with the aid of the capital you offered to lend me to trade with on my own account there was a general exclamation of surprise and pleasure at the mention of the sum although this amount was small in comparison to that which many acquired in those days in india and you're not thinking of going back again charlie his mother said anxiously there can be no longer any reason for your exposing yourself to that horrible climate and that constant fighting the climate is not so bad, mother, and the danger and excitement of a soldier's life there at present rendered it very fascinating. But I have done with it. Peters and I intend, on the expiration of our lead, to resign our commissions in the company's service and to settle down under our own vines and fig trees. Tim has already elected himself to the post of my butler, and Hussein intends to be my valet and body servant. Immediately after their arrival, Charlie had brought in his faithful followers and introduced them to the ladies, who, having often heard of their devotion and faithful services, had received them with a kindness and cordiality which had delighted them. Lizzie, whose appearance at home had been unexpected by Charlie, for her husband was a landed gentleman at Seven Oaks in Kent, was, it appeared, paying a visit of a week to her mother and her three children, two boys and a little girl, were duly brought down to be shown to and admired by their Uncle Charles. And how is it you haven't married, Katie? With such a pretty face as yours, it is scandalous that the men have allowed you to reach the mature age of twenty-two unmarried. It is the fault of the hussy herself, Mr. Tufton said. It is not from want of office, for she has had a dozen, and among them some of the nobility at court, for it is well known that John Tufton's niece will have a dowry such as many of the nobles cannot give to their daughters. This is too bad, Kate, Charlie said, laughing. What excuse have you to make for yourself for remaining single with all these advantages of face and fortune? Simply that I didn't like any of them, Katie said. The beaux of the present day are contemptible. I would as soon think of marrying a wax doll. When I do marry, that is, if ever I do, it shall be a man and not a mere tailor's dummy. 
you are pert miss her uncle said do what i will charlie i cannot teach the hussy to order her tongue katie's quite right uncle charlie laughed and i must make it my duty to find a man who will suit her taste though according to your account of her he will find it a hard task to keep such a xanthippy in order katie tossed her head he better not try she said saucily or will be worse fam two days later charlie's elder sister returned with her family to her house at seven oaks where charlie promised before long to pay her a visit after she had gone charlie and peters with katie made a series of excursions to all the points of interest round london and on these occasions ada usually accompanied them the natural consequences followed charlie had for years been the hero of ada's thoughts while katie had heard so frequently of peters that she was from the first to dispose to regard him in the most favorable light before the end of two months both couples were engaged and as both the young officers possessed ample means and the ladies were heiresses there was no obstacle to an early union the wedding took place a month later and tim was in the exorbitance of his delight hilariously drunk for the first and only time during his service with charlie both gentlemen bought estates in the country and later took their seats in parliament where they vigorously defended their former commander lord clive in the assaults which were made upon him tim married seven or eight years after his master and settled down in a nice little house upon the estate although henceforth he did no work whatever he insisted to the end of his life that he was still in colonel barriott's service Hussan, to the great amusement of his master and mistress, followed Tim's example. The pretty cook of Charlie's establishment made no objection to his swarthy hue. Charlie built a snug cottage for them close to the house where they took up their residence. But Hosan, though a happy father of a large family, continued to the end of a long life to discharge the duties of valet to his master. Both he and Tim were immense favorites with the children of Charlie and Peters, who were never tired of listening to their tales of the exploits of their fathers when with Clive in India. End of chapter 30 Recording by Gary Ullman End of With Clive in India or The Beginnings of an Empire by G. A. Henty